0: we say thank you again for joining me on this episode of the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vella. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be presenting a paper that I wrote on a little studied topic known as the noetic effects of sin, that is the effects of sin on the mind. This is a paper that I wrote for my senior thesis when I was at Moody during my directed study on Christian philosopher and theologian Cornelius Van Til. Now, before I get into that, I just wanted to give a special shout out to my ministry partners over at The Mentionables for all of the great fun that we had during The Mentionables Conference 2018 just a couple of weeks ago. If you haven't seen any of the videos from the conference, head on over to thementionables.org. By the way, the definite article is very important in that web address. Don't go to just mentionables.org. It's a very different website, and you'd be very confused. Okay, so... (laughs) Go to TheMentionables.org to check out the info. You can see all of the video for free by visiting The Mentionables group page on Facebook, or if you subscribe to The Mentionables podcast, the audio will be getting released in various episodes. There were some really great talks given by Adam Coleman, Nick Peters, and others, and then there was a debate between uh, atheist Ben Watkins and myself on the biblical God and the problem of suffering, But the real surprise for me was the two panel discussions that opened and closed the conference that just really got into some interesting topics. So definitely check those out. I think all of us there really thought something special happened during those times. So please go and check out those resources. I think you'll really be encouraged and edified by them. Okay. No more announcements. Uh, Sponsor, link on the blog, Patreon, give reviews, five stars, blah, 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 blah. I'd love the support, but this really has always been a labor of love, uh, just that your support helps it uh, be a little less laborsome. Yeah, I I guess I can coin new words today. Oh, and uh, you may have just heard this uh, about a minute ago. I live in L.A., you know, the desert of Southern California, and summer is officially here. So it's 10 p.m., and it's still, like, 90 degrees outside, and I live in a house that was built in, like, the late 60s. So if you suddenly hear something like a wind tunnel kick on in the background, like you probably did at the start of this introduction, I'm sorry, but that's just the A.C. kicking on in my house. There's nothing I can do about it. So... There's that. Sorry, Andrew Rappaport. He's going to hate me for that. Sorry. uh, There's nothing I can do to to cancel that out. I don't have a fancy sound studio. I'm sitting in, uh, in our little breakfast nook recording this. So, okay. With that, let's jump in and explore the noetic effects and effects of sin and grace. Enjoy the show. and philosophers think about the relation of sin and the nature of man with respect to his ability to think and reason, the common way of framing it is through the category known as the noetic effects of sin. Claims are often made about the preservation or the impairment of one's ability to think rationally before and after the human race was plunged into sin by the fall of Adam. While this may be a helpful and fruitful way to talk about sin's impact on the mind, it seems to leave a larger, more fundamental question unanswered. One can first ask, what are the noetic effects of sin that are the root of the noetic effects of sin? Surprisingly, this question has gone essentially unanswered, even in reformed Calvinistic circles where this issue is frequently in the forefront. To bypass the question concerning the ontological ramifications of sin in order to address the epistemological ones seems to be a hasty leap to make. Imagine someone being asked to describe some sort of disease like cancer or AIDS, and rather than stating what the disease is and how it affects the body, they describe it primarily by its symptoms. This symptomatic description, while helpful in identifying the presence of the disease, would do little in identifying the essence of the disease. This seems to be the case with sin and its impact on the mind and reason of the human race. We must first know what sin is and how it affects our minds before we can possibly begin to formulate comprehensive statements concerning the noetic effects of sin. This distinction is also vital in understanding the cure to the problem of sin, namely grace. If sin is the cancer, then grace is the cure. And yet, we cannot begin to describe those who are under grace and manifest its effects without first addressing what has been affected in order to create those effects. However, even with this important distinction now made, which will be pivotal in our understanding of how sin and grace affect us, we must first answer the question, who are we? Sin and grace do not act upon a vacuum. They act upon us, and we are not blank pages. What is it in us that was lost at the fall and is regained in Christ—the image of God? We read in Genesis one twenty-six to twenty-seven. Quote, then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth." So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In this passage, we're told that mankind is created in the image of God, that is, imago dei. While this simple fact is clear, the particulars of what it means to be made in the image of God are not stated for us. Because of this, many theologians have debated what it actually means to say that humans are created in the image of God. There are views that point to the ability of man to reason or to have relationships as what it means to be in God's image. Others point to the dominion of man over the earth, spoken of at at the end of verse 26, as what constitutes the image. Even others would point to the fact that God created humans male and female and state that it is only in our unity as a species that we best see the image of God reflected. Yet what seems strikingly obvious but barely mentioned is that nothing can be said about the nature of man without first making reference to God. Even reformed epistemologist Alvin Plantinga holds to this when he states, If we don't know that there is such a person as God, we don't know the first thing, the most important thing about ourselves, each other, and our world. That is because the most important truths about us and them is that we have been created by the Lord and utterly depend upon him for our continued existence." Quote. Those who look to this passage and others in order to find what composes the image of God in man shockingly miss the simple point that is precisely that we are made in God's image. We must ask with Barth how could we know man apart from divine revelation? If we attempt to ask, What is man? and respond with an answer that does not first begin with the existence of God, we have already crippled our ability to define the nature of man. Regardless of what else the image of God may entail, the root must always be based on the nature of God. The fact that we are in an image, should tell us that there is something that we are imaging by which we derive our nature. Thus, if the image entails reason, it is because the nature of God is reasonable. If the image entails personality, it is because the nature of God is personal. If the image entails us doing and thinking all things in order to bring glory to God, it is because God does all things for his own glory." If the image entails man's dominion, it is because God, in his essence, is the absolute sovereign. If the image entails our relations to others, and indeed primarily to God himself, it is because the nature of God is relational. Our being is not rooted in some deistic or pantheistic impersonal being, but rather on a Trinitarian being who is relational with regard to himself. Everything that the image entails is entirely derivative. The I-thou paradigm of Brunner is immensely helpful here. According to Brunner, the human eye has its origin in the divine thou. If anything, the image which separates us from the rest of creation is not uh, that of the ability to reason, but rather that of self-awareness. This is a similar conclusion drawn by many secular philosophers and psychologists as well, even though they attempt to make our self-awareness solely humanistic. But this cannot be the case because it was God who created us to know that we are distinct from him, and yet created by him. The paradigm is I-thou, not I-it. Calvin speaks of the sensus divinitatis, inherent in every human being. That is to say, every human being has a sense of the divine. Every human knows, to some degree, that the triune God exists. For Calvin, this is partly because of general revelation, but primarily the sensus divinitatis is an actual disposition that is placed in the mind of man by the common grace of God to acknowledge him. The problem that Calvin and others who follow after him must then answer is how is this census divinitatis retained in humanity even after its fall into sin and plunged into death? While I would not want to deny the existence of the census divinitatis, I would differ from Calvin on its source. It seems that Brunner's version of the I-Thou paradigm is a more proper foundation for the universal belief in God. To be made in the image of God means to be self-aware of our own creaturely nature in relation to and derived from the nature of God himself. This requires, then, that to think about ourselves is to think about God. This should not be assumed to say, that, say more than it means, as if what is being argued for is some kind of human divinity indicative of Eastern religious thought. Rather, to be self-aware is to be aware that we are created beings who owe our existence to the giver of life. If we cannot define man without first knowing that God exists and created us, then we cannot be self-aware without being aware of the, of the God who is. Even after the fall, man is, and always remains, God's self-conscious creature. To this, we must also add that the I-thou paradigm is first and foremost a paradigm of thought. It would be quite strange to feel the I-thou paradigm. This is not to say that there will not be an emotional response to its truth or the attempted rejection of it, but it would be primarily that, an emotional response to a cognitive truth. Wilson states, quote, When law comes to an unregenerate man, he always does two things— he acknowledges it as true, and he hates it as true, End quote. Self-awareness, and thus awareness of God, is the preeminent epistemological reality. Brunner, along with Barth, also saw the image of God as not only consisting of attributes, but primarily as a relational standing between man and God. We were made in covenant with God and remain in covenant with him for all eternity— even our ability to reason is a product of our covenant relationship to God. Van Til put it this way, Quote, All his knowledge is analogical of God. God is the original knower, and man is the derivative re knower. Man knows in subordination to God. He knows as the covenant keeper. End quote. Thus the question becomes not, am I in relationship with God, but, what kind of relationship do I have with God? In other words, is the God who is near, near in wrath or in grace? The answer to that question will be based on whether or not the image of God that we possess is corrupted or restored. Noetic Effects and Effects of Sin Now that we have discussed what the image of God is, we can begin to look at the noetic effects of sin upon it. Frequently, the effects of sin upon the image of God are used only to explain things like physical illness and death. For all else, we simply skip by the effects to talk about the effects, such as moral and ethical failure, the inability to trust God, and the corruption of our ability to reason, which is most fully expressed in our rejection of Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. But if the image of God is primarily the self-awareness within the I-thou paradigm, then the effects of sin upon that state are disastrous. This paradigm is precisely what is destroyed. When Eve was tempted by the serpent in the garden, and when Adam later ate of the fruit, they did not perform simple acts of rebellion. The temptation, you will be like God, from Genesis 3-5, was not a statement that humans would actually become deities, but rather that they would become autonomous, knowing good and evil on their own without reference to God. Rather than accepting God at his word, Eve stood in judgment over it and attempted to understand it with reference to herself. The creature attempted to stand in judgment over her creator. Rather than holding to the I-thou paradigm of her being, she plugged her ears of her soul and, like a small child ignoring her parents, shouted repeatedly, I, I, I. In turning away from God, Adam and Eve and their entire race after them were actually attempting to commit ontological suicide. If what makes us human is that we are created in the image of God, then to deny God is to deny the very thing that makes us human. Sin seeks to destroy, and in our case, we willingly participate in the attempt to annihilate ourselves. Thus, sin brings death. Now, we can see that this sin does not destroy our ability to reason or to have relationships but rather removes the very foundation for them and thus distorts our ability to apply them to the glory of God. This is commonly called the wider and the narrower senses of the image of God, the wider being the actual faculties such as reason and emotion, and the narrower being the proper use of those faculties to bring glory and honor to God. Yet we must also assert that there is one more level that precedes these two senses of the image, God. Since it is the nature of God that is the defining aspects of our own nature, then to deny God's existence is to deny the very basis and justification for the use of those faculties which accompany it. I'm going to butcher this name. I can never pronounce it. J. Budziszewski, something like that, states it like this, visualize a man opening up the access panels of his mind and pulling out all the components that have God's image stamped on them. The problem is that no is is not sorry the problem is that they all have god's image stamped on them so the man can never stop no matter how much he pulls out there's still more to pull end quote. Thus for a person to use their reason they must use it inconsistently they must use their god-given reason in order to reason away god They lose the basis for their ability to reason, to appreciate beauty, to empathize, to self-express, and even to exist in creation. When we live autonomously and seek to explain anything without reference to God, we undercut our faculties and eliminate their foundation, which is the nature of God. Edwards put it this way, quote, a man that sets himself to reason without divine light is like a man that goes in the dark into a garden full of the most beautiful plants and most artfully ordered and compares things together by going from one thing to another to feel, for, to feel of them all to perceive their beauty, End quote. Thus we can say that the noetic effect of sin is on the distortion of the mind which was only, which was once firmly rooted in the I-thou relationship and sought to understand and do all things with reference to God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into a mind that blindly screams I and seeks to do all things with reference to the Trinity of me, myself, and I. Paul addresses this in Colossians 1.21 when he states that because of our sin, we, quote, once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, end quote. It is important to note that it is only after this noetic hostility that Paul states that we do evil deeds as well. Our immorality and wicked deeds are not the primary grounds for our separation from God, as some would say, but rather the hostile mind that is behind them. Jesus said that, "quote, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks," end "quote, Matthew 12:34. Paul in 1 Timothy 1:10, having listed a plethora of evil deeds, does not contrast wickedness with goodness, but rather says that wickedness is "quote, contrary to sound doctrine," end "quote. That is, evil is not only antithetical to good, but also to truth. Thus, Paul can say of those who do not believe, quote, by their unrighteousness they suppress the truth, end quote, Romans 1.18. These people clearly know God, quote, for what can be known about God is plain to them, end quote, in verse 18. That is, his divine attributes have been, quote, clearly perceived in the things that have been made, end quote, in verse 20. They knew God, verse 21, and they know God's decree, verse 32. What is destroyed by the fall is not knowledge or our ability to reason, but rather our ability to reason about all things with reference to God and to rightly align ourselves under what we know to be so, because we seek to suppress the truth to maintain our own autonomy. It is because of this slide into autonomy that they became, quote, Feudal in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, end quote, verse 21 to 22. The unbeliever is not stupid, but foolish. We have a glimpse into this in the testimony of, again, J. Budziszewski, who recounts his own move from philosophical nihilism to Christian theism. Quote, When some people flee from God, they rob and kill. When others flee from God, they do a lot of drugs and have a lot of sex. When I fled from God, I didn't do any of those things. My way of fleeing was to get stupid. Though it always comes as a surprise to intellectuals, there are some forms of stupidity that one must be highly intelligent and educated to commit. God keeps them in his arsenal to pull down molish pride, and I discovered them all." We now have no need to construe man as a faulty receiver of revelation in order to account for the noetic effects of sin. When theologians attempt to claim that sin affected our faculty of reason and thus we have become faulty receivers for the revelation of God in nature, they create more problems than they solve. While it is true that we no longer receive rightly the declaration of God's eternal attributes in nature, it's not due to broken equipment, but rather faulty software. The unbeliever can reason that 1 plus 1 equals 2, that an apple is not a bird, that green is not a shape, and can correctly apply the laws of logic and inference. They can design buildings, do complex mathematics, and, ethically speaking, be good parents, devoted husbands, and dutiful children. Westfall adds a helpful insight on this quote when he says, "...correct beliefs can be as useful in suppressing the truth as incorrect ones." So the problem is not that they cannot reason, but that they do or think everything without reference to God, and thus the doctrine of total inability. They can do nothing pleasing to God while still in their sin, because nothing is done to the glory of God. They have what Van Til called formal knowledge, that is, they have the appearance but not the substance. We have seen a prime example of this in our discussion concerning the image of God and man. To say that the image consists of man's ability to reason is in fact formally correct, and yet it is at the very least an inadequate understanding because it denies the first thing that must be known about man before any definition of man can be made. God made him. To say that 2 plus 2 equals 4, without reference to God, either explicitly or implicitly, is formally correct, and yet does not acknowledge the first thing that must be known about that very basic equation, that it is true because of whom God is. All of creation was created by God, and thus it is, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, end quote, Acts 17:28. Yet to do science, mathematics, logic, art, eat, sleep, make love, or feed the poor, without reference to God, is like a broken clock. It has the appearance of the correct time twice a day, and yet even at its best, it's still a broken clock that is not a trustworthy means to tell time. It takes a properly functioning clock that does not only formally show the right time to be a trustworthy means of telling time. Yet we can still ask why someone would want to suppress the truth about God if it is so glorious. First, we should say that it begins from their conception. We are born already denying that existence of the thou in order to be autonomous standards of truth, beauty, and morality unto ourselves. However, as we get older, we become exceedingly more proficient at it. Here, Plantinga gives a helpful insight. Quote, Perhaps I am tormented by guilt before God, or perhaps my desire to live a way of which, as I see it, God disapproves. Then I may be inclined, with Tillich, to think of God as an impersonal abstract object, the ground of being, rather than a living person who judges me. Or I may come to think of him as an unconcerned with the day-to-day behavior of his creatures, or, I may come to think of him not as a holy God who hates sin, but more like an indulgent grandparent who smiles at the childish piccadillos of her grandchildren. Quote. We commonly think that sin is something we do, but as we have seen, it originates in the mind. Sin is not principally in our behavior, although this is where the clearest examples are to be found. Rather, sin is primarily a function of our thoughts. Genesis 6 5 is crucial for our understanding on this point. Quote, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Quote. The Lord's evaluation of pre diluvian humanity was not an indictment upon the wickedness of their actions, though we could assume that they were acting wickedly, but rather it was their noetic activity, the intentions of their thoughts that was viewed as wicked so if our spiritual inability and death originates in the mind then so must our regeneration and conversion the noetic effects and effects of grace we saw previously that our sin is not only an affront to the holiness of god but is also an attempt at self annihilation thankfully for us quote the essence of man his relation to god is not annihilated by ungodliness due to god End quote. It is by God's grace that we do not, at any given moment, blink out of existence. According to Van Til, quote, Since humanity could not cut itself loose from forms, from uh, loose from loose God metaphysically, and since God, for the purpose of realizing his plan of redemption, rudia or skeletae, that is, lump or spark of the knowledge of God and of the universe, remain in him. End quote. So now that we know what was lost we are in a better position to know what is by grace restored. What is needed to repair the fallen condition of the soul requires nothing less than the, provi- the provision of the great physician. Quote, "I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you." End quote. Ezekiel 36:26. By the way, just an aside, this isn't the paper. If you'll listen back to my episode dealing with concordism, you'll remember that the word for heart isn't what we think of as emotions. It actually is the seat of the mind. It's where we do our thinking. Okay, continuing on with the paper. In the New Testament, we're told that in Christ, the image of God in us is renewed. But more than that, we're told that what God conforms us to is not Adam, but to the image of his son, Romans 8.29. Thus, Barth declares that our anthropology must be based on our Christology. So let us first begin by looking at Christ in the image of God. We are told that Christ is the quote "image of the invisible God end quote in Colossians 1:15. He is the quote "exact imprint of God's nature in quote Hebrews 1:3 and even more frankly that he is quote, "the image of God" in quote Second Corinthians 4:4. Christ was the true Adam, who did not act autonomously and thus plunge the species into death, but rather was the only man to do all things to the glory of God, thought all things with reference to God, and looked to God in all things as a source of truth, justice, beauty, and good. From the day of his birth to the day of his death on the cross, Jesus perfectly lived the I-thou paradigm without slipping into autonomy. We see that even the divine Christ sought to understand all things with reference to God when he said, quote, "Even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me." End quote, John eight sixteen. Quote, Into the solitariness of the I thou of the thou less I, God has stepped as thou. The monologue of existence has become the dialogue of existence. Now there is unconditional fellowship. End quote. So, when God regenerates us, when he restores us to the natural I thou relationship to himself, what occurs in us? What are the effects of grace? First, we should continue to see this largely taking place not in the emotions or in the realm of personal mystical experience. We should not even see this as having its genesis in the moral life of the believer, although this will be seen as the effect of grace. It is astonishing to see that repeatedly in the New Testament, when we are exhorted to put on the new self or to be transformed, the emphasis is almost exclusively on the mind. When we are, quote, taught in Jesus, end quote, we are, quote, renewed in the spirit of our minds, end quote, Ephesians four twenty-one and 23. The natural man cannot accept the things of God because they are spiritually discerned, but the believer can because, quote, we have the mind of Christ, end quote, 1 Corinthians 2.16. And Paul urges us, quote, not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, end quote, Romans 12.2. This can be seen quite clearly in Philippians 4.8-9 as well. Quote, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul does not tell the Philippians to primarily act truthfully honorably, justly, etc., but rather to think about true, honorable, just, pure, lovely things. It is in our thoughts that the God of peace is with us. Only after our mind is transformed in one area will the corresponding actions be as well. Calvin put it this way, For how can the idea of God enter your mind without instantly giving rise to the thought that since you are his workmanship— you are bound by the very law of creation to submit to his authority; that your life is due to him; that whatever you do ought to have reference to him. Another prominent place in the New Testament that we see this truth is in Colossians one twenty-one. We saw this verse before, but are now prepared to draw out another aspect of what Paul was saying. Notice here that Paul says that we were. Quote, once we're alienated from God and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, end quote. The enthymemic premise in Paul's argument is that we are no longer alienated from God and hostile in mind because we have been reconciled to God. The mind must be the first point of renewal when a person comes to a saving knowledge of Christ because it is the faculty that is used in order to live under the I-thou paradigm. If God did not first transform the mind, but rather kept us from lusting or being greedy for gain, we would immediately fall back into condemnation because we would instantly seek self-annihilation through autonomy. Instead, the Lord affirms in us the uh, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge from Proverbs 1:7. Here, we agree with Anselm who wrote that the image of God in him, quote, is so effaced and worn away by my faults. It is so obscured by the smoke of my sins that it cannot do what it was made to do. Think of God and love of God, unless thou renew and reform it. Thus, it is proper to speak primarily of the noetic effects of grace. Renewal, first and foremost, occurs in the mind. Once this renewal occurred, it is then and only then that we can act in accordance with the nature of God. It is only from the effects of grace that we can come to a full understanding of the effects of grace. It is only when God renews our minds and moves us from a poor relationship with him where he is near in wrath to a good relationship with him where he is near in grace that we can believe on Jesus Christ, abstain from our sins of the flesh, and love our neighbors as ourselves. Conclusion. As we have seen, That the existence of God is the primary epistemological category for understanding not only the nature of man, but also the effects and effects of sin and grace upon humanity. What was lost at the fall was not our ability to reason, but our ability to reason or to do anything at all to the glory of God. Because we now seek to, to be an authority unto ourselves without reference to God. In doing so, we eliminate the very thing that must be known in order to say anything of value, God is. Thus, the only cure for our condition is that God would condescend and be made like us, take on the image of God and redeem our minds back to himself by grace. We have seen that the fall primarily occurred in the mind and that our regeneration begins there as well. Hopefully, this paper will be the impetus into further study into the scriptures regarding the noetic effects and effects of sin and grace. Well, thanks again for joining me on this episode. I'm looking to do some shorter, bite-sized episodes, but I'm in need of your biblical, theological, or philosophical questions for me to attempt to take a stab at answering. You can submit these questions along with any comments, concerns, criticisms, commendations, or condemnations to... FreedThinkerPodcast.blogspot.com FreedThinkerPodcast.gmail.com or by visiting the Freed Thinker Podcast group page on Facebook. Well, join us next time as we ask ourselves, was Jezebel really such a Jezebel? Good night and God bless.